Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. But it isn't necessary to be anti-national to be deeply suspicious of all nationalism. To be anti-nationalism. Nationalism of one kind or another was the cause of most of the genocide of the 20th century. Flags. Today's show is The Political Power of Music. We're listening to Flags by Slovo, featuring Arundhati Roy, Indian novelist, political and human rights activist, and 2004 winner of the Sydney Peace Prize. Today we're joined by guitarist, producer, composer, and author Dave Randall. His book, Sound System, newly out from Pluto Press, is an insider's view of the music industry, shedding light on the secrets of celebrity, commodification, and culture, and the system of music that serves them. Yet music can be a force for social change, sounds made by us for us. Randall's question throughout, how can we make music serve the interests of the many, rather than the few? Dave Randall has toured the world playing guitar with Faithless, Dido, and Sinead O'Connor, to name just a few. He's also penned his own political song, Freedom for Palestine, released in 2011, and brought out pointedly political music with his own band, Slovo, whose song Flags opened the show. In the conversation that follows over the next 90 minutes, Dave Randall asserts that the political power of culture is too important to leave to the academics, and hence his writing this book. Two questions guide this important work, and in doing, blend pop and politics to investigate the sound system. One from Marvin Gaye, What's Going On? And one from V.I. Lenin, by way of Nikolai Chernyshevsky, What is to be done? To begin, I asked Dave for a bit of detail about his youth to see if there might be some clue there to his political interests. After that, we discuss his song, Freedom for Palestine. If you don't mind, let's start with you, uh, just to kind of warm us up. Dave, uh, give us a kind of Dave Randall autobiography. I'm a musician, first and foremost, a guitar player, uh, and I've played with all sorts of acts, some of them quite well known, at least in Europe. Uh, Faithless uh, is the band I'm, I'm most associated with. I played with uh, the electronic music band Faithless for the best part of two decades, but also um, artists including Sinead O'Connor and Dido and um, a whole number of people and one or two um, musicians from other parts of the world 
as well. Uh, so my background is music, and um, and it was music really that that first got me thinking about politics. I talk about this early on in the book. For me, it was um, a song that first made me aware, really, of global political issues and and started me on, on the journey, which finally cul- culminated many, many years later uh, with this book. Hmm. Well, uh, let's go back a little further, if you don't mind, uh, Dave. One of the things that's interesting about people is we have to occasionally try to situate them in their time, where their where their brains come from, I guess, you know, how we get to the right. place we are. It's an interesting aspect of, of where we come to be uh, thinkers in our time, right? So where are, you, where are you from originally, Dave? So I, I was born um, on the fringes of East London, uh, or the borders of East London and Essex, and I grew up in southeast Essex um, in, a, in a kind of a, well, at, at that time, a slightly run-down seaside town um, in the relatively um, is it is maligned to the right word? People often like to um, <laughs> joke about Essex. It's it's kind of the it's it it's sort of the brash working class part of southeast uh, England. Uh, most of the other so called home counties around London are a bit more well to do. Mm. So I grew up in a in a, in a slightly um, at the time a slightly shabby seaside town called Southend on Sea. Um, but I was I felt very lucky. I was very happy there because. Um, by the time I was a, was about 15 years old, I had already um, come into contact with a number of really great musicians, many of them uh, associated with the kind of the British rhythm and blues scene, uh, the kind of the, the R&B scene that was a bit of a forerunner of punk, bands mm. like Dr. Feelgood, um, bands who arguably... Uh, well, I, I think it's probably true to say had some influence on on U.S. acts like the Ramones, and and so and so there were some musicians kicking around a bit older than me um, who had done some pretty interesting things, and and, and I met them as a teenager. I got a, a, a job in the local guitar shop, and uh, and then subsequently got a job roading for a local mm. kind of uh, blues and and and, uh, and rock band called the Hamsters. So I was very, very much immersed in, in that kind of uh, music scene. Yeah, you, you fell into it in a big way, it sounds like. Yeah, from, from quite an early age. Yeah. And, um, you know, there were times when I thought, oh, you know, I, I, sh- I should be at parties um, trying, to, trying to chat girls up, um, <laughs> you know. And, and, and instead, I'm, I'm, instead, I'm tuning up guitars and selling T-shirts <laughs> in bikers pubs at the other, you know, the other end of the country to right, where I live. Right. But. But but most of the time I felt incredibly lucky. Yeah. Most of the time I felt incredibly privileged to have um, to have that insight to mm-hmm. to serve to serve what really was kind of an old school apprenticeship, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, you I was, know? yeah. I was going to say that it, it does sound that way, and it's it's an interesting thing when you hear people talk about what they do if they if they have any real relationship to to work and the things they they create in life as well. They. Um, they uh, they get involved in a, in a in a purpose purposeful way, right? There's a sense that you're a, you're involved in something, you belong to something, you're you're a part yeah. of that creative force, uh, even in yes. in in the very basics of it. You know, the rodeoing, the 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 tuning yeah. up. The, you know, you're you're involved in it. So right. it's an education that you don't get in school. We always talk about that, right? It's, oh, it's absolutely. the punk line, right? You can't learn this stuff in school. Absolutely, absolutely true. Yeah. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. Our show is The Political Power of Music, and my guest is guitarist and activist Dave Randall. 
We're nearing uh, uh, Nakba Day, is that correct? It's an annual day of um, commemoration of the displacement that yeah. preceded and followed the Israeli Declaration of Independence, which falls on May 15th each year. So uh, we're, we're getting to uh, a day that is... Um, uh, I guess a day of catastrophe for for Palestine for Palestinians and yes, so I, thought I think it was a, that's the translation of Nakba. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, so let's uh, let's jump. I know we jump. This is jumping to chapter nine, I guess. But I, I thought it would be a good a good chance to sort of open up with your uh, tell us a little bit about your your song "Freedom for Palestine" and we'll we'll go backwards from there, I suppose. Yeah. Um, it's interesting because you've jumped right in, Doug. You've ju- jumped right into probably the most contentious issue mm-hmm. um, that that I um, have sort of touched upon during my career as a musician. Uh, I explain in the book that my decision to try to use my platform as a musician in a progressive way uh, has taken many different forms, you know, supporting anti-racist campaigns, um, wearing T-shirts on TV in solidarity with workers on strike and so on and so forth. And, and on the whole, uh, all of my colleagues have really approved of, of, of my attempts to, to get political in these ways. But the the really uh, contentious issue, which which came to me, you know, I wasn't looking for another political cause, uh, but... Faithless were booked uh, several times, actually, initially way back in 1997, I think, or 99, perhaps both. We were booked to play in Israel, uh, in Tel Aviv, first of all, or, or actually it was a rave on a beach just south of Tel Aviv. And I decided to use the day off to travel uh, to, to into Gaza, to Gaza City, to see what life was like for Palestinians, because I'd heard a little bit about the political situation out there, and I was curious and uh, and that really started me uh, on a journey um, to discover much more about the history of the situation, the realities of the situation, the realities of everyday life for Palestinians living both in Israel and also in the occupied territories, Gaza and the West Bank. And in the end, I decided that um, I needed to do what I could, what whatever small gesture I could make. Um, in solidarity with the Palestinians, that you know that that felt that that was the, it felt that that was the right thing to try to do, and um, and one of the things I did was was record a campaign song entitled "Freedom for Palestine," um, which which came out in 2011 actually, and in the end it it um, it got quite a lot of uh, attention, quite a lot of support. Uh, but of course, there were people who who disagreed with with the uh, objectives of, of the song, and um, and indeed uh, and indeed, sort of my position politically on that question. Uh, it's a very, as you know, it's a very hot potato. I'm sure that I'm, I'm sure that that's probably even more true in the U.S. Yeah, yeah, it is a hot potato. It's one of those things that, uh, uh, as everything often is in the situation, you 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 hesitate to talk about that which you do not know. Um, and can't even necessarily um, think about in the proper frame of, of mind, I suppose. But uh, mm-hmm. this is a song that uh, did it. So, in a sense, that you, you took you a decade to come up with it, or it took you a decade of sort of no. political ferment, or you know, where, when, you know, how did it evolve? Um, well, I became interested, of course, in in uh, in the whole situation out there, and. Um, when I made an album of my own under the band name Slovo, 
Um, I invite, in fact, I've made two albums under that band name. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second Slovo album, an album called Todo Cambia, uh, featured a rapper who is based in Ramallah, a rapper called, called Boycott. Uh, mm-hmm. and, um, and so when Faithless were playing in Haifa, so this is fast forwarding now to 2005, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, when we were playing in Haifa, I invited Boycott to come to the gig because he'd become a friend. We'd collaborated together. And it was he back then, 2005, who said to me um, that it would be impossible to come to the gig because of the Israeli-only roads that dissect the West Bank because of the the separation wall, uh, because of the, the random checkpoints and, and, and the, the likely holdups that there would be for him at those checkpoints. Um, and actually, he went on to say that actually, as a supporter of the cultural boycott of Israel, he wished we weren't there at all. Mm. And that was the first time that was the first time I'd um, heard of this notion of a cultural boycott being called for by Palestinian civil society. So that really was the first um, political project which I had to sort of get my head around and, and, and think about and talk to people about. The song came much later. You know, the, I sort of had the idea of, of, of recording a song mm-hmm. in about in about 2010 when we were invited to go back again to Israel and uh, decided not to. So uh, 2011, then the song you say came out, you call it a campaign song. I don't know what that means. Um, you know, I'm so used to making it a um, a political song in terms of campaigns for office. Is that your intention when you call it a campaign song or a campaign for peace or a campaign for boycotts? Is that just a generic term? No. I, well, I suppose it's I, I suppose I, I feel it's an appropriate term because what happened was a number of campaigning organizations, mm. uh, the uh, campaign for uh, sorry, the, the Palestine Solidarity Campaign, Jews for Justice for Palestinians, the mm-hmm. Israeli um, campaign against house demolitions. I, I forget all the all mm-hmm. the what war on once, which is a, a very much respected charity here in the UK, uh, the Stop the War Coalition, Um, all these campaign groups decided to use the song as a centrepiece for a sort of a coordinated, largely online um, campaign Mm. to, to really raise awareness about the realities of life for Palestinians, particularly those living in the West Bank and mm. in Gaza. So, so you know, uh, um, so, so that's why I call it a campaign song. Nothing to do with electoral politics, right. more, to, more to do with raising awareness about an important mm-hmm. issue. So many years of catastrophe, more than six million refugees it could be. It's time for a break. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. We're listening to Freedom for Palestine by One World, written by my guest Dave Randall. When we return, Randall takes issue with Theodore Adorno's assertion that pop music could only be a distraction useful to the state. Stay with us for more on WFHB. No matter your faith or community, this is a crime against humanity. Gaza turned into a prison camp. Apartheid war divides the West Bank. We are the people and this is our time. Stand up, sing out for Palestine. We'll break down the wall. Freedom for Palestine. Demand justice for all. 
Welcome back. I'm Doug Storm on Interchange. My guest is guitarist, activist, and author Dave Randall. We're talking about his new book, Sound System, The Political Power of Music. In this segment, Randall contradicts Theodore Adorno's position on pop versus classical music and offers, as an example, the song that first caused him to think politically, Nelson Mandela, by the special AKA. We begin, though, with a further investigation of the terms we use to describe political music. The, the other thing I'd add about terminology is that I personally, I've never liked the term protest songs. Mm. It, it just sounds sort of, it sounds kind of um, too passive to me or too, you know, the idea that we're always protesting right. against things being done to us rather than setting the agenda. So, so that's the other thing. I tend to avoid... Um, I tend to avoid the term protest songs. Hmm. Um, now, you make a note of that in the book as well, I think. I don't remember which artist you quote calling yeah, it a revolutionary Victor song. Ah, yes, mm-hmm. exactly. Well, uh, yeah, well remembered. Yeah, Victor Hara, the, the great Chilean um, political singer, uh, made that distinction. And uh, and I agree with him. I, I think that's a useful a useful distinction to make hmm. well there are hard distinctions right i think one of the issues uh, that uh, or uh, i guess as much interested me in your book as anything else we are doing a series on uh, this program called the sounds of resistance and one of our one of our purposes was to try to understand how we categorize these things or how it doesn't serve us to categorize these things or how we need mm. to look at each thing in its own moment and categorize it there right yeah uh, is it a protest is it a revolutionary song is it a political song? Does it have? Is it action oriented? Is it a reflection? You know, is it historical? Uh, all these kinds of things. Yeah, and I think I think sometimes it's um, you know sometimes songs. I mean, sometimes art 
doesn't fall into neat categories, no, and that's right. fine. That's okay. <laughs> but 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 I do think that there are some overarching uh, facts that I explore in the book. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'll give you two of them. In, in in my view, there are two fundamentally important things to recognize. The first is that culture will always be politically contested. Mm-hmm. In other words, whether you make an overtly political song or if you if you make a completely politically ambiguous uh, an instrumental song or a, or a seemingly um you know disposable pop song wh- whatever art you create whatever songs you write they will be pulled in different directions by different people with different agendas at least if they're successful mm-hmm. you know at least if they have an audience they will be pulled in different directions so that's the first thing to recognize you know you can't guarantee uh, a particular political impact according to the style of the song you mm-hmm. know it doesn't work it doesn't work like that um so all, all culture is contested politically i believe the, the second thing i think I, I would add is that the most effective overtly political music seems to me to be the music or, or indeed the, the artists who are in some meaningful sense connected to broader political struggles mm-hmm. broader political campaigns and uh, and political activists mm. you know th- those songs that come from a political movement um and those artists who make the effort to remain connected with political movements mm. tend to be the most effective gotcha that's that's interesting and it's an important distinction i think it's it drives a lot of what happens in the, or what you write about in the book and trying to distinguish the commercial culture of of this kind of song as well from uh, as you say the the music that comes out of those movements um yeah well yeah. you you begin the book i think basically trying to dispel that as you were talking there that there's there's only one kind of political political music or you know being sure to make make it clear that all kinds of, of music can be political that they're there's a, an erroneous distinction sometimes between uh, high and low art and the politics of each. Right. And uh, in here, you also um, you kind of uh, say that even making these distinctions is a kind of hierarchical divisiveness, you know, that kind of keeps music in its particular place the way it keeps people in, in their place as well. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. And Adorno, you mentioned Theodore Adorno uh, here mm. as well. Uh, so I, I wondered if you might uh, express a little bit about uh, what or- Adorno gave you in terms of a framework to start thinking about it yeah i mean adorno i, I felt that i couldn't really duck adorno but i don't want your <laughs> listeners to i don't want your listeners to, to be put off this, you know my the book isn't a heavy academic tome at all right but um but i i felt like i had to take on what adorno says because i've heard it repeated by other people in other contexts it mm-hmm. tends to come up and his central idea is that popular music is used by the ruling classes to distract us. You know, that, that while we're chatting about Lady Gaga's latest fashion statements or or gazing um, up at a TV screen to see Rihanna's latest video or, or speculating about Kanye West's mental health, while we're doing these things, while we're sort of spending our time uh, listening to or talking about pop music, actually politics is going on behind our backs and it's not going well for us. It's not, it's, <laughs> right. not being, it's not being played out in our favor. In other words, Adorno argues that, mu- that, sorry, that pop music is deployed as a weapon of mass distraction mm-hmm. to distract us from the things that really matter. Now, I think that sometimes that's true. I think that sometimes he's right. But very, but very often, um, 
music can can do something quite different, including popular music. I think it can actually raise issues. It can give confidence to people. It can cohere people around a set of progressive ideas, and so on. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. Our show is the political power of music, and my guest is guitarist and activist Dave Randall. I mean, the funny thing about Adorno was that his criticism was confined to pop music, although his definition of pop music was very broad. Mm. Um, he liked the music of Arnold Schoenberg, the mm -hmm. great Austrian 20th century composer. Um, he kind of I, I, he liked the fact that the music was. Uh, I mean, Schoenberg was one of the pioneers of serialism, this this um, quite difficult, unsettling sounding music right. that, that that was devoid at the time, at least devoid of cliche and um, and traditional harmonic kind of techniques. Right. And I think that Sch Sch sorry, I think that Adorno liked the fact that the the listener has to work a bit, right. you know, right. I, uh, that it, it, it engages Schoenberg's music engages the intellect uh adorno felt in a way that pop music doesn't now but but you're absolutely right I, fundamentally i think that that um that he is missing all the nuance and i'm surprised that he misses all the nuance <laughs> because actually even in even in adorno's day he was writing his most famous essays in the in the 1940s even back then there were plenty of other people who thought that different types of popular music could be very progressive. Mm -hmm. You have people like Alan Lomax, the famous folklorist, um, believing that, that popular music could be an important platform for politics and, and, and therefore championing artists like Woody Guthrie and Leadbelly, um, arguing that New Orleans jazz was a form of proletarian protest and, uh, and a source of great pride and, and so on. So I think that, um, so, so I think that, Adorno's view uh, was 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 very limited, and uh, and I'm surprised really that such an esteemed academic reached what I felt was um, was quite a crude conclusion. But 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 he did. But by the way, I mean he wrote about a million words about music. <laughs> right. There was there was nothing um, lazy about about this man. <laughs> right. He was yeah absolutely pro right. prolific, right. but somehow kind of missed the fact. Well, the fact as I see it. That, uh, that 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 popular music can play a progressive role, and by the way, that new music, that the sorts of new music that he was so fond of, I think can also be co-opted by oh, sure. um, right. by our our enemies. So you know, I, I think he he missed the the kind of the nuances of the contestation of culture, and therefore I talk about him in order really to to set out my disagre my disagreements. Right. Yeah. So the you you do well. Obviously, uh, I think you you set up a, a in some sense a personal uh, disagreement in terms of your own life and discovery through music. Right. So you're, you you have right. to come from the place Dave Randall comes from, and right. Adorno has to come from the place he comes from, and may, maybe at some point you can get together. Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you, maybe you can find I a mean, way to argue together. Yeah, maybe. I mean, it's certainly his his position got slightly more nuanced later mm -hmm. on towards towards the end of his <laughs> his life when he was writing in the sixties. But uh, but you're absolutely right. I mean, I became interested in global politics at least because of a song i i mentioned this earlier the song mm -hmm. was free nelson mandela by the special aka mm -hmm. um 
I don't know whether that was much of a hit in in, in the states, but over here in in in, in Britain, it um, I think it had a, a a big effect on a, on um, lots of people of my generation. I think it was the first time that we heard the name Nelson Mandela. Mm-hmm. And um, and of course, it, it, it uh, we wanted to know more. We right. wanted to know who this man was and what Jerry Dammers, the songwriter, was referring to. Uh, and it's a great song. I mean, that that helps. It it, uh, it always helps if the song is good. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. It's time for another break. We're listening to Nelson Mandela, performed by the special AKA. Written in 1984 by British musician Jerry Dammers, the song is a protest against the imprisonment of Nelson Mandela by the apartheid South African government. Stay with us for more on the political power of music when Interchange returns on WFHB. Welcome back to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. My guest is Dave Randall, longtime guitarist for the British electronica group Faithless. We're discussing his book, Sound System, The Political Power of Music, published by Pluto Press. In this segment, we'll center on disco as a kind of protest form and the backlash against it. But before that, John Lennon gets cheeky in the Queen's presence. 
about pop culture, you know, I think most of us understand that, and maybe the first first recognizable um, universal commercial artist for many of us, especially again artists that are my age or perhaps your age, uh, were the Beatles. This is a popular music group that uh, you know earned lots of money, made lots of money for the corporate corporations that that uh, put out their music, and um, but in this space uh, where the Beatles are. Uh, going to, I guess, play for, uh, play in a particular uh, scenario for the royal family or on TV, and you can tell us a little bit about right. that, Dave. That there is a point where John Lennon tries to make a little bitty protest, and but it's but in some yeah. sense it can be deepened into a more meaningful one. Yeah, I talk about this. Well, I talk about the Beatles fairly early on in the book in order to illustrate this uh, this this the the point that uh, that culture is politically contested um and sometimes a few simple words uh delivered by a, a much loved musician can sort of subvert the meaning of an event and there was one great example of this way back in 1963 so long before your time or my time but um so this was the very early days of the beatles but they, they were asked to perform in front of the queen mother uh live on tv at an event called the Royal Variety Performance. It's an annual event that still goes on. And um, as he introduced the last song of the Beatles set, John Lennon simply said, I want the, che- the people in the cheap seats to clap their hands, and if the rest of you could just rattle your jewelry. For our last number, I'd like to ask your help. For the people in the cheaper seats, clap your hands. <laughs> and the rest of you, if you just rattle your jewelry. We'd like to sing a song called Twist and Shout. Now, um, by today's standards, that's completely mild. I mean, how, how, is, how is that possibly a significant political protest? But actually, I think that was very significant because the whole event was set up, I think, to sort of, if not reinforce, at least sit comfortably with the kind of the dominant narrative that everybody knows their place in the class hierarchy and everybody's happy to be a subject of the Queen and all all these sorts of assumptions. And I think that what Lennon did was he recognised that that was the subtext of this whole show. And, uh, and, And by introducing the last song in that way, he subverted things. He actually turned what was supposed to be a polite display of deference to the royal family and so on, he turned that into into a situation that gave Britain its first, because don't forget this was televised to the nation live, gave Britain its first synchronized seditious smirk and i think that and i think that was very significant you know and and of course lennon went on john lennon went on to to do all sorts of bold uh things politically uh particularly later on in in his career after the beatles Mm -hmm. um but yeah i also talk about the way that the beatles were very sought after by fans 
uh, on the other side of the Iron Curtain during mm. the the uh, the Cold War years and 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 how they were banned by the Kremlin. Um, and uh, and and so yes, I, I sort of I do I, I I use the Beatles to illustrate the different ways in which music can be political. Yeah, it's uh, it's you constantly run up against if if your brain is running while you're thinking about things, you're constantly running up against the contradictions in every moment, right? The the idea of yeah. uh, if you have the opportunity. Uh, and don't use it or use it in a minimalist way or use it in a way that can be ambiguous or use it in a way that can can be manipulated later. Uh, there's there's this real and I think it's a Western issue. Maybe, uh, you know, it's my own sense of growing into this this comfortable Western commercial world that I inhabit. And that's yeah. that I think everyone that performs in it inhabits frequently. And, and you, you know, especially ones, uh, the people that make um, that are that are commercially successful. I, again, you make a special point of saying being a musician is hard work, and much of it is labor oriented, and that it's not bright lights and cheery all the time. Um, yeah, that's an important point to make. But when we're talking about the ideologies that we're trying to sort of untangle, um, mm. you often wonder how is it that you can make a small gesture that can easily be used in the culture wars instead of making a larger one. But the larger ones are career-ending very, very uh, frequently, yeah. right? You can't imagine can the danger, right, to, to self, to, to career, to, to capital, mm. to your money, to your wealth, etc. There are lots mm. of things that sort of stop us from truly saying what we'd like to say if we believe in those revolutionary moments you know if we want to say you know jangle your jewelry because you know you're all mm. you know terrible people <laughs> whatever whatever you're trying to say in that moment right yeah. um, you're yeah. still co-opted by the particular system you're in it's it's a difficult thing to untangle right it's part of the book's power well, to me is it tries to untangle a lot of it it does try to untangle it. I mean, I, I think the fact is that you, you do the best you can. And therefore, if you have a platform, uh, you know, you sort of make a judgment call, really, about what you can get away with. And I, I think that some musicians will sort of not be interested. And that that's fine. I mean, you know, it's not the case, of course, that first of all, it's not the case that every musician is interested in politics. And secondly, right. uh, lots of them who are probably got quite lousy politics you know I'm, I'm not so i'm not assuming i'm not making assumptions that musicians will necessarily have good politics but if they do have good politics good uh, you know according to my value system at least which you know broadly means uh, progressive left-wing politics uh, then i think it's it's a good idea to make a judgment call and and do what you can that might mean wearing a particular t-shirt if you're going on tv it might be agreeing to lend your name to a particular progressive campaign it might be agreeing to to play at a certain gig or a fundraiser um so you do what you can this is doug storm on interchange our show is the political power of music and my guest is guitarist and activist dave randall Culture isn't just created by the cultural workers, by the musicians and so on. Culture sometimes gets its meaning from um, from from the audience, if you will, mm. uh, from from, you know, from the people who get together to enjoy mm. the music rather than the people who create the music. And, and therefore, um, disco is, is an example I give of a music which 
you know, probably f- from the point of view of the people making disco wasn't necessarily particularly political, but because it became the centerpiece for um, a group of people who were often excluded from mainstream society because of homophobia, because of racism and so on, uh, that starts to be politically significant. So, um, so, you know, when we talk about music and politics, it's much broader. I think that it, it, it's, it's a much broader conversation than, mm-hmm. than just how, how do we make political statements? How do we stick two fingers up to the, <laughs> to the boss, to the boss or to the, or, or to the, to, to the monarch, right, you know, right. Um, right. yeah, there's, 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 there's lots of different, lots of different ways really mm-hmm. of, um, of, of, of creating progressive culture. Right. Well, you know, uh, you mentioned disco there and it's an, another facet of this for me is I, as I was reading it and I was thinking, you know, that you're, you're making interesting points. Uh, uh what you just said there was also interesting, a space of expression, uh, that you can, uh, feel in and not, and hopefully escape from the oppression that has, uh, has surrounded you in the, in the quote unquote normal culture. Um, mm. but another thing that happens there with disco, at least for me anyway, is that disco is disco lives in my mind sadly probably sadly lives in my mind with john travolta uh right and and probably you know donna summer um these are the two icons of disco for me in middle america and uh, again disco is is sort of become becomes peanut butter sandwich at that point right yeah, I mean, it exploded into the mainstream uh, for a relatively brief period right. um, in, in the late 70s. And I suppose that's when you got the John Travolta's and, 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 and those sorts of phenomena. But, right. um, um, but, but, but then, but, but despite the fact that it exploded into the mainstream, there was still uh, this, this backlash, mm. uh, the Disco Sucks movement. And yeah. I, I'm one of those people who believes, I, I mean, I know that the right-wing shock jock who who led that movement denies this but i'm i'm somebody who thinks that um that that was very much motivated by homophobia mm. and racism you know mm-hmm. i mean mm-hmm. even if it wasn't even if that wasn't consciously the case uh for all those rock fans all those kids kind of uh smashing disco records uh even if they weren't doing it consciously for those reasons i think that was very 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 clearly uh, the sort of subtext mm-hmm. there. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, you know. Well, that's an important, uh, again, an important moment in in history for me too that I hadn't, you know, I hadn't thought about before. Uh, only peripherally had some sense of it. In fact, I might have only just had a sense of it through a YouTube video of that actual event, right? right? Of, of yeah. the actual blowing up of those records, uh, blowing up in, in in the football stadium. Yeah, which was shocking to me. Thinking about it, that was like uh, that's Comiskey. Was that Comiskey Park? Was that in Chicago? Yes, that's right. Yeah, that's right. and yes. I was like, how did how did that happen? <laughs> Yeah. How, how did they allow that to to take place in the first place? Right, this is like a book burning on you know in a stadium. Well, exactly. That's crazy, exactly. right? I was like, how did I mean, that happen? Just how did that happen? And and you know, by by all accounts, they nearly lost control. It was a near a near riot, oh, man. a very ugly event indeed. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's time for a break. We're listening to Love is the Message by MFSB from 1973. Better known for the theme to the hit show Soul Train, the Philadelphia-based studio collective claims an acronym meant to signify the strength of family connection, 
mother, father, sister, brother. But it's also a boast about their musical prowess, and it also begins with mother. I'll leave the rest to your imagination. back to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Our show tonight is The Political Power of Music, which is the subtitle to Dave Randall's new book, Sound System. For this segment, we'll move from disco to rave, which may have no explicit political program, to rock against racism, formed in 1976. And we'll close with the music of the sovereign nation that is Fela Kuti, the Nigerian multi-instrumentalist and activist whose music addresses the post-colonial corruption of military governments in Africa. But first, is feeling good a political statement? Maybe that leads into a kind of house music, uh, the kind of driving beat of of a particular kind of uh, loss of self that you talk about as well, a way to yeah, a way to yeah. sort of forget about your your particular uh, human uh, existence as it's labeled and categorized in the moment. Um, but that's that seems to me a scary thing for a lot of people that 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 are. I guess I guess I'd say on the right of the spectrum, it seems to be uh, a fear of of uh, sort of emotional expression via physicality. Frequently enough, there's a well, right a right way to be emotionally <laughs> emotionally charged. Mm-hmm. It's you know m- you know loud headbanging music, and and it seems to me a separate 
a separate world in some sense. Uh, now that's that's just me now all of a sudden being very very Manichaean, and I get accused of it frequently, and I apologize for it. But um, <laughs> you know, you do get that sense with with a music that's expressive in a physical way, that sexual and sensual, that it kind of scares some people. Yeah, although I think that um, yes, I, I mean I, th- I think that's true, uh, and that's probably. Um, another dimension to the backlash that took place against disco i think it's another dimension of that but but what i talk about in the book is 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 that that desire to put music at the center of an attempt to create a sense of community mm-hmm. when when you've been robbed of that by 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 society by you know what's going on in society um that that same uh, attempt uh, to use music to do that comes up again mm. some what what would about ten years later in Britain and, and and perhaps to a degree in the states although I know less about that but certainly in Britain what you had was the late days of the Thatcher government so this was quite a right wing government mm-hmm. uh, who had presided over rising unemployment public spending cuts and so on so w- what you had were working class communities becoming increasingly fractured. Um, lots of young people without work and uh, and without a sense of hope for their future, and also traditional ways of fighting back seemed to have failed. You know that the, the sort of uh, the, the Labour Party failed to to win an election which the, you know which they were tipped to win. Uh, the trade unions had been cowed by key victories against the, the miners and, and the print workers, and so people I think were quite desperate. Um, and they were being told by the Thatcher government, by Margaret Thatcher herself, there is no such thing as society. So a sense of alienation, I think, was felt. I mean, not the same, not for the same reasons, not the same sense of alienation as the disco pioneers. Mm. But nonetheless, a, a, a sense of alienation was suddenly felt by huge numbers of working class Britons in, in the late 1980s. And it was those people who turned to music in particular, rave dance music um, turned to and, and through these illegal raves, which were absolutely hugely popular. Um, you know that rave became the fastest growing popular cultural movement in the late days of Thatcher's Britain. And so the connection for me is um, is this sense of alienation that people respond to alienation uh, by by you know by by using music to to, to to have a reason to come together, to give each other a hug, to feel a sense of unity as, as, as nature always intended, but, but so often we are denied. Right. An important uh, aspect of it that, uh, that I think does straddle the line of trying to say um, this, this will get us into a good emotional state, or, um, uh, but we still have to do the heavy lifting of the after effects, right? Uh, after the feeling good, after the ability to come together, to still seek out community um, within the yeah. within the world that comes after the the feel good party. It's it's one of those again. It's the struggle we we have to we have to continue with, and, and if not just intellectual, you know, I'm not trying to you know do the Adorno and split the two and say only only the intellectual work matters. They're, they they clearly need to come together, um, and I think it's as interesting that I think I'm going backwards where you went forwards in the book, but you have a chapter mm-hmm. that you 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 detail Felicuti. Um, a little bit mm. and the politics there. That's the getting political chapter you, you head on into Africa. But it's interesting yes. that, that Thatcher, you know, in saying there's no society, uh, uh, you know, meaning there's no, there's no collective care. 
Uh, there yeah. is there is no group that can care for you. You're on your own. This is individualism. Yeah. Right. Um, right. In the in right. the in the Kuti, uh, you also have a, a a a person that that's that's trying to say those. He almost says the same words actually in in his um, in the book. Uh, I think it's called Fela. Um, this bitch of a life is is the book. I think it came out not too right. long ago. He he says yeah. in that book something similar. He says, you know, what is this society that's that's attacking me? What is this society that's that's putting me in prison? What is this society mm. that tells me I can't do these things? And you know, he curses mm. about it and and he he questions that that construction of society versus his and the collect as as you say the collective of of his music, the collective of trying to organize his own kind of community. Um, and, and Fela Kuti, I think, becomes pretty interesting and important, especially as you describe how he crafts his lyrics also. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. Our show is The Political Power of Music, and my guest is guitarist and activist Dave Randall. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a distinction. I think that when Thatcher says it, she's <laughs> right. she's, assen- she's essentially justifying um, a breaking up of the welfare state. And, right, um, right. you know, it, 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 precisely as you put it, Doug, you know, you're on your own. This is a dog-eat-dog world. Got no sympathy for you if you're poor. Uh, it's your own fault. You know, that was what Thatcher was saying. I think that when, when Fedakuti says it, it's quite different. I think he's probably talking more about the kind of the narrow conservatism uh, and sometimes the very, you know, aggressive actions of the N- Nigerian military. Um, now, look, um, you're, you're, you're right to point out the limitations of, of Rave. And I think that part of the reason um, why Rave was so easy to ultimately to co-opt, in other words, we went from free parties and these ideals of community to uh, super clubs and high earning celebrity DJs and expensive tickets and VIP areas and all the rest of it quite quickly. Uh, and I think the reason for that was twofold. Firstly, uh, a lot of the rave, the, the, the early ravers um, were precisely interested in escaping from everyday life rather than trying to change society. Right. And, um, and, 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 and they didn't have, they, either they didn't have the will, but even if they had the will, they didn't have a significant political movement to attach themselves to, to align themselves with. And again, that, that's the critical difference. You know, music which is harder to co-opt, which is more effective uh, at creating a better world, um, tends to be the music that does have, that does have a, a, a political movement to align itself with. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the best example in, in British uh, recent history was Rock Against Racism, which was a, a conscious attempt to guide um, the music scene in general, but but especially punk and also reggae, uh, to, to 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 guide young people towards a, a, a sort of a, a common sense position of being anti-racist at a time in British politics when that wasn't inevitable at all. Um, but in Nigeria, you're right to link this to link this with. Um, 
with Fela Kuti. I mean, this was the same time that Fela Kuti would have been releasing Zombie. Zombie came out, you know, one of his greatest dance floor filler tracks from the album of the same name. Zombie was released in 1976, the same year that Rock Against Racism was formed in Britain. Mm. And um, and I think that, you know, I think that Fela Kuti is a very interesting character and I do write about him. He's a contradictory character. Mm-hmm. And I think that part of the problem that he had um, was was that rather than being part of a bigger political movement, he became very much the figurehead of a kind of, um, of, of, of a sort, I mean, to call it cult of personalities is, is perhaps over the top, but he certainly sort of, um, I think was, was, was isolated mm. from the sorts of forces that could have defended him from the attacks from the, uh, from the, from, from the, from the military and so on. Uh, but still, what he did do was create a genre of music, which um, which solved a sort of a dilemma that I talk about uh, for, for, for West Africa and popular culture at the time. The kind of the dilemma of what post-colonial culture, in particular post-colonial music, should should sound like. He sort of solved the dilemma by mixing these hugely influential new sounds from the USA, in particular soul music and funk, mixing that with high life and other West African forms. And then, of course, he added overtly political lyrics, rally, uh, which, you know, which, which, um, which were critical not only of the old colonial powers and, and, and the big corporations that were exploiting West Africa, but also critical of the Nigerian government at the time. So, so for, for that alone, I think we should, we should take our hats off to Fela Kuti. <laughs> good. It is good stuff, too. Yeah, it's good. I like, yeah, I, I, I like it a lot. I like Fela. Right. It's time for a break. We're listening to Zombie by Fela Kuti from 1976, an explicit attack on the military government of Nigeria and the tools of state repression we call soldiers. Stay with us for more on the political power of music with Dave Randall when Interchange returns on WFHB. Okay. 
Welcome back. This is Interchange on WFHB. I'm Doug Store. For this segment, we'll take a look at music directed against oppressive governments, from the neoliberal incubator of Chile in 1973 to the Arab Spring of 2010 that unleashed counter-revolutionary violence that continues today. I do want you to say a little bit about uh, Victor Yara um, also, if you can, simply because uh, this is a person uh, who was murdered by government officials or junta officials or, you know, I'm not mm. sure exactly, you know, the, the death squads, murder squads in, in yeah. Chile at the time and, and sort of a, yeah. a casualty of that, that first shot across the bow of the, the neoliberal economic world order. Well, that's right. I, I sort of make the argument that really one of the, um, one of the key moments in terms of the, the, the birthing process of neoliberalism, this particular form of capitalism, which essentially argues that we should, you know, deregulate the markets and um, privatize everything, that one of the first test beds was, was Chile. Uh, and, uh, and, and it came about because of a CIA-backed coup, which cost the lives of at least 10,000 Chileans, including the president at the time, Salvador Allende. But also, yes, Victor Yara, uh, this incredibly inspirational um, political folk singer. Uh, he was very outspoken. Uh, he was a, a keen supporter of Salvador Allende. And of course, Allende um, was also, he also had the support of, um, of a radical mass workers' movement at that time. So, you know, this would have been a very exciting time to be in Chile. But, um, but yeah, Pinochet's coup. Uh, came along on the on the 11th of September 1973, um, and um, and Yara was one of the political activists who was taken to the stadium there in Santiago. It's now called the Victor Yara Stadium, but he was taken there with 3,000 other trade unionist political activists and and and, and, and others, and they were uh, tortured and then murdered. So uh, it's it's an incredibly tragic story, but um, it's 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 an important story I think to include in the book because it reminds us that um, sometimes the stakes are very very high indeed for musicians, and therefore when we talk about music and politics, we're not just talking about the Beatles and the Clash. Actually, we're talking about uh, we're talking about situations sometimes where people have um, have lost their lives. Yeah. So you know, my my position earlier about you know saying you've got a platform and you can really say something also means you can really be dead. Yo no canto por Ni por tener buen amor 
la guitarra tiene sentido y razón tiene corazón de tierra y alas de palomita es como el agua bendita santigua gloria si aquí se encajó mi canto como dijera violeta The other example that I go into is, of course, the music of the Arab revolutions right. of 2010, 2011. Um, uh, and, um, and, and yes, I, I think it's very important to, 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 to say that because you know what, Doug, people have said to me, a few others go out and try and change the world. <laughs> and, And you know, very often that's true. Mm. Very often that is true. Very often that is the case. But on some occasions, including during the Arab the Arab revolutions, um, we see that music is absolutely central to critical moments of mass struggle. Music can help to cohere people around a set of demands. It can help to bring confidence to long oppressed people. And uh, and yes, some of those brave musicians have paid the, the, the highest possible price for, for, for their courage. Why don't you tell us the story, Dave, about uh, the, the one particular, was it a, a firefighter, a fireman, uh, also a well, Right, yes, Ibrahim al-Kashush uh, in Syria. Yeah, that's, um, so, so the chapter begins as the short-lived Arab Spring did. It begins in Tunisia, but it ends in, in Syria. And in Syria, we find this, full-voiced firefighter and part-time poet, a guy called Ibrahim al-Kashush, singing in the town square in Hama, which is one of the big cities in Syria. Uh, and he's singing a song which, uh, which I'm told is written in a tr traditional Levantine folk form, which is a call and response form, perfect for asserting political demands. And you can find a little film of this performance on, on YouTube if, if you look for uh, Ibrahim al-Kashush, Syrian Revolution, you know, if you, if, you, if you put the right search in. You don't really get to see him, but you see the crowd and you can hear him. And it's a very exciting piece of music, I think. Every single line he's laying into the regime of Bashar al-Assad and, and the hook is, get out Bashar. And that's the hook that the, that the crowd repeats. And the intensity builds and builds. <laughs> I think it's a very exciting piece of music. The, the, the film that I saw uh, of the performance was um, 
was from the 27th of June 2011. The, re the regime re responded quite quickly. Um, just a few days later, on the 4th of July, the body of Ibrahim al-Kashush washed up on the shores of the Orontes River. And um, it was quite clear from the way in which he'd been murdered that he had been murdered precisely because of that performance. So again, a, 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 very, a, a very chilling mm -hmm. and um, a very disturbing and very sad example of just how high the stakes can be right. for musicians uh, in certain situations. Right. Well, I think you said uh, his voice box was cut out. Yeah, that's a detail which I which I don't always include, just because you don't know who the audience is going to be. But yes, if um, yes, I, I'm afraid that the gruesome detail, the reason why, mm -hmm. uh, is because he had he had had his throat slit and his voice box mm -hmm. ripped out. Um, so yes, uh, the, the most brutal, mm -hmm. uh, the most brutal murder, and, and very clearly. Um, uh, very clearly an attempt to send a message to other artists and to other political activists to, um, to, to, to you know, to shut up. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's one of the, the struggles I've frequently have with trying to understand uh, the very things you're talking about here is that generally we talk about these co-option, we talk about the way the state can use particular performers and particular uh, commercial products Um and it's it's one of those things that's that entangles our very existence, right? The fact that there are commercial products, right? The fact that there is recorded music yeah. versus, you know, the active the activity, the agency, the 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 ability to play, sing, dance, to be together in a community, these things yeah. uh, don't even require instruments generally um right, of course right. it's nice to have them but um yeah. you know your point throughout is that uh, you know you, it's kind of a history of how reproduction causes problems in terms of how it's made use of and uh you know so it's an i don't know that you necessarily intended it but throughout as you come to chapter 11 you get the sense that community and community organization community within music you know community with music creates that space of neighborliness you know this the space of 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 where you live yeah, I, that's absolutely right. I mean, the Rebel Music Manifesto uh, begins with a description of a kind of a, a music night that takes place near me. Um, and and it's, it's, it's free to get in. It's, it's great fun. The whole community shows up. And, uh, and it's, it's a really, I think, a really wonderful space where people's um, fears and prejudices are washed away by a fa fantastic atmosphere, an atmosphere created by a wonderful live music so you're right it begins with um with looking at the importance of music in our local communities the importance of uh, music of, of, of music education and, and making sure that that's accessible to everyone and it moves through a number of other suggestions um right through to the sorts of things that we can do to put pressure on the world's biggest stars to do the right thing you know to join progressive campaigns to observe boycotts when appropriate and so on so there's a range of suggestions and you're right it starts with the importance of community but but the the, the thing that connects them for me and um and perhaps i haven't quite stated this as clearly as i should have done i'm not sure but um but yes community is very important but i i also think that political uh, movements, 
uh, and, and political movements require political organisation. So actual conscious political movements and political organisation is is vitally important too. So it's not for me, it's not just good enough to, to have a community run venue and great events going on. You need to link that up with nationwide and indeed global struggles uh, for a better world. So that might be uh, in, in this country at the moment, st- struggles against the conservative government's policy of austerity, struggles against hate crime and racism and, and so on. And, uh, and I dare say that some of your uh, listeners will be keen to get involved in, in struggles against your new president and everything that he seems to represent. So, you know, it depends on where you are, but 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 you have to link a vibrant community music scene, I think, with broader struggles, including protests and demonstrations and, and, and strikes and all those other sites of political struggle. We need to link those up. We need to bring the music to the politics and the politics to the music in mm. order to be effect in order to be effective. Well you're you're speaking of the the permanent revolution. Am I? Uh, perhaps. <laughs> It's time for one last break. We're listening to Bob Marley and the Wailers, 1973 song, I Shot the Sheriff. Stay tuned for more on the political power of music when Interchange returns on WFHB. I'm Doug Storm on Interchange. That was Bob Marley with the 1973 song, I Shot the Sheriff. Eric Clapton covered the song in 1974, reaching number one on Billboard's Hot 100. 
In 2003, Clapton's version was inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame. Perhaps that should read Hall of Shame. Clapton's appropriation of and mainstream success with Marley's song must be paired with his own right-wing politics and his outspoken racism, shouting out at a concert in 1976, Keep Britain White. stress throughout you make notes here and there throughout the book that that yeah. music is is co-opted by the right wing as well uh, your book is clearly Absolutely. a left-wing book but you're you're you, sure. and you point out that uh and you make actually a, a you you make an example of of eric clapton in the book and in his politics at the time i don't know if they're still his politics but um if you want to uh, briefly sketch that uh, you can sort well, of yeah go ahead that that was a fantastically important moment in British um, popular culture. I, I referred to it a bit earlier, but that was the catalyst for Rock Against Racism. You see, what happened uh, was in, in, in the mid to late 70s, there was a very politically ambiguous kind of um, atmosphere in, in, in British popular culture, essentially because there were lots of um, politicians and lots of elements of the mainstream media who were encouraging Britons, uh, affected by this first wave of austerity, actually, the first wave of kind of neoliberal politics that was being uh, delivered by the Labour government of, uh, of Jim Callaghan. Uh, he took a loan from the IMF. The IMF insisted that he forced through public spending cuts. So this was this predated uh, Thatcher, but, but it was moving in that same direction. A lot of young people were angry and a lot of sections of the media were encouraging those people, those angry uh, people, including young people, to blame foreigners, to blame people of a different ethnicity and so on. And therefore, there was a rather toxic atmosphere developing and one or two pop stars weren't helping out. David Bowie made these ridiculous statements that um, that Hitler was the first rock star. You had Rod Stewart saying that he thought that Britain was full up. And, um, and, and, and worst of all, Eric Clapton, live on stage at the Birmingham Odeon, drunk, uh, although we shouldn't in any way uh, take that as an excuse. <laughs> no. drunk, drunk, drunk on stage at the Birmingham Odeon went on this dreadful racist rant that went on and on and on. And actually, you asked whether his politics have changed. Well, they probably changed a bit. But I'll tell you what, unlike Bowie, he never proper, properly apologised mm. or, re or retracted those comments. So anyway, there were some music fans who were absolutely shocked by this, absolutely shocked by this racist outburst, people who had up until that point been fans of Eric Clapton. And they wrote a letter to uh, the music press saying, you know, we're fed up with this racist poison in music. Who wants to come and set up Rock Against Racism with us? Mm. And, and it became an incredibly effective um, intervention, a conscious political intervention into popular culture, uh, suggested by political activists, not musicians. Uh, and and it, it was it was it was those people. It was Rock Against Racism, the the, the, the core organisers, who successfully pulled off some huge demonstrations and huge free gigs 
right across the country. Uh, gigs that, you know, The Clash performed at, Elvis Costello, uh, a, a, gr- a group of, uh, a, a number of great reggae bands performed at, Tom Robinson, uh, and, and so on. So, you know, this was slightly before my time, but I grew up, Doug, in an atmosphere where, unfortunately, yes, there was still racism around, but the cool kids were anti-racist, mm. and many of them were into reggae. Now, I think that anti-racism was the cool thing. Anti-racism was what, you know, smart kids were into, precisely because of this conscious intervention into culture by left-wing activists. Without Rock Against Racism, who knows what sort of an atmosphere I would have grown up in. Mm. It's, a good, it's a good point, and uh, um, I, it's always a difficult situation. The, the, the thing that I think you start the book with um, is is has become somewhat problematic for me um, throughout life. I think uh, we, we talk about sort of the history of your. I think you used the word soundtrack before, right? Uh, we all have our own soundtracks, and you you bring up yeah. the, the the alienation in pop music frequently, right? This is the the general gist yeah. of most pop songs, and I don't know that we've escaped this. This is I think this is the primary tool for. For mass, you know, management, you know, popula- uh, the population that that struggles with the loss of youth, you know, the m- melancholy and nostalgia of of better days, right? Bruce Springsteen's glory days, and I think uh, Nick Hornby has a speech in in one of his books about you know the fact that your your kids are. You, you shouldn't worry about drugs with your kids. They're listening to music. <laughs> it's the music uh, that's going to uh, give them this, this sense of m- melancholy and, 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 and nostalgia. And wish I was special. You're so very special. And I'm a creep. I'm a It's not quite what I'm arguing. What I'm saying is that the sense of alienation um, exists mm-hmm. and uh, and that's a product of this uh, of the way that society is organized you know we're, we're quite atomized we don't have enough time most of us right. to express ourselves creatively to, to to tell our loved ones that we love them we don't have time to sort of develop hobbies and um, and, and see you know our friends and family mm-hmm. enough and all these all these things all these things and therefore um you know, lots of people are working two, three jobs just to pay the rent and, right. and, and, and so on. And, uh, and, and, and then, of course, we are spoon fed this kind of top down corporate culture through the television screen or through the through the laptop. And um, and, and that's problematic, too. Mm. So the alienation exists. What what I argue is that a lot 
of popular music articulates that feeling of alienation. Mm -hmm. And I think that's very interesting. Now, it's true that sometimes music just sort of helps us to endure that alienation, perhaps even to wallow in it. But, uh, but you know, um, that, that's true that sometimes it just helps us to carry on as we are. You know, it's sort of, if, if you like, it's a bit of an elastoplast that gets us through the day. But at its best, I believe that music can, to, to paraphrase Leonard Cohen here, at its best, music can prise open the cracks that let in the light, hmm. illuminating the path to a better world. In other words, when we go to, a, in particular, when we go to a great gig or a festival and we remember how good it is to emotionally connect with other human beings, to actually give them a hug, to celebrate them rather than always to see them as competitors and rivals and so on, as, as often happens in the workplace. You know, when we are when we're reminded how good it is to emotionally connect with other human beings, we we, we actually get a glimpse of how life could be. Mm. We are left sometimes, I think, with a kind of a lingering sense that maybe a better world is possible. So that's music at its best. Well, I'll, I'll let I'll let your uh, your hopefulness be the end, Dave. Right. <laughs> 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 They sang at the break of day. Start again. That's our show. Thanks to Dave Randall for talking about his new book, Sound System The Political Power of Music, published by Pluto Press. And as we ended with Dave's paraphrase of Leonard Cohen, we thought we'd honor that and close with his song. This is Anthem from his 1992 album, The Future. Yeah, the war, they will be fought again. The holy dove, she will be cut again. Bought and sold and bought again. The dove is never free. Thanks for listening. A reminder that you can find this program along with other interchange programs available for podcast at our website, wfhb.org slash news slash interchange. Feel free to send us an email also. Our address is interchange at wfhb.org. I'm Doug Storm. I produce Interchange. Assistant producer is Rob Schoon, and Jennifer Brooks is board engineer. Executive producer is Joe Crawford. Stay tuned for the Jasmine Azury coming up next, right here on your community radio station, WFHB. We asked for signs, the signs were sent, the birth betrayed, the marriage spent.
they've summoned up a thundercloud. They're gonna hear from me. Ring the bell that still could ring. Yeah.